You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Governor David Ige has less than a month to resolve a major shift in the Hawaii Tourism Marketing and Management contract. Will there or won't there be a deal ironed out between the Hawaii Visitors and Conventions Bureau and the Council of Native Hawaiian Advancement over a very lucrative multi-million dollar contract? Can the baby be split in two before December 5th, which is the governor's last day in office? CNHA's Kohil Lewis joined us in studio early this morning to talk about the way forward and resolution sooner than later. I think what's important here is we live in a state that's different from other states where we can have conversations and think about the future of Hawaii in a different perspective. And so what's going on now with respect to the contract is we are trying to work out differences and play upon the strengths of of both sides and find a path forward that's best for the state of Hawaii. So we have been engaged in conversation, those that have held this contract as well as with the state to find a path forward. So you've been in talks with the HVCB, uh, Department of Business, uh, Economic Development uh, and Tourism. I think there's some question as to whether this uh, management contract is going to get resolved before the governor's term ends on November 5th. I think that's the hope. The hope is that this be resolved sooner than later. Uh, We're anxious to get started doing the work that we had proposed. You know, it's not our intent to disrupt the market and to disrupt the industry. And so the faster we can get to work and show people what it is that we bring to the table and what this new path forward could look like, I think the better off we all are. You know, the proposal that you put forth had a committee of people in the uh, industry. Has that taken better shape? I mean, you know, because you've got intern people in there, you, you want to know who you're who the players are. Yeah, absolutely. So understanding that this proposal never before has the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau been challenged. And so, of course, this is foreign to everyone. This is foreign to residents. This is foreign to the industry. And so we wanted to make sure that the transition into this role was one that is embraced, that is understood by everyone, residents and industry people alike. And really that's the spirit of our application is one in which we could bridge community and industry together to find that special fabric that we all love and hang on to and what really makes Hawaii special. Well, there was some pilikia because there were names of industry leaders that were put forth and they weren't comfortable with how their participation was being presented, that it was more uh, using their names to get the contract versus we'll get the contract and you help us out later. Yeah. So I think the and I'm glad you brought this up because it was it's something that hung over us from the beginning. At the end of the day, everyone that was mentioned in the proposal was consulted. There was discussed. But uh, I don't think that. Well, first, I don't think anybody expected there to be a different outcome than the one that has existed for you know, year after year. Uh, and, and with that, it, it's a culture shock. But I'll say this. I'll say that those that were listed in the proposal wanted to be supportive of the path forward, regardless of the outcome. And it's in that spirit then, and it's in that spirit now that, you know, and I've had conversations with everyone that has been a part of that initial con- conceptual transition plan and team, and we're committed to that working together. Well, is the team definitive? It's pretty definitive at this point. Of course, we are continuing to work, although we're still solidifying the how things will roll out in terms of the award. 
Uh, but I think my, the team that we've assembled is very strong, very committed, and they're, they're moving in a path forward that allows that sentiment of resident, visitor, industry to all work and play together and be a part of a functioning society. So the team is, uh, I mean, we're adding people because as we now go forward, we feel that it's important that some perspectives that may not have been thought about at first contribute. So we're, we're still adding people to that transition team. Well, help our listeners wrap their heads around this. How different would your management contract be in the management programs? How, do they, how would they compare with what HVCB currently has rolled out? Well, I think it's good to recognize that the Hawaii Tourism Authority has created a new path forward in terms of how we market Hawaii. It's no longer a marketing contract. It's, it's a destination management, almost like an educational type of contract in which you can enrich people's experiences. And I think there are opportunities in which we can tell our stories more authentically, engage our community uh, on, the, on the economic development front as well. But it's the reciprocation between people, land, and culture, and the culmination of that, and create, making sure that the focus is one on regenerative, or one that benefits, first and foremost, the, the people of Hawaii. So how does tourism benefit Hawaii in meaningful long-term ways? That's the shift that we're proposing. Uh, our organization does a lot of workforce development. We do a lot of business development. We work on branding and marketing. We have a huge membership. And we're all prepared, ready to engage and play upon those strengths to shift the model in which we can provide that meaningful experience to visitors, but also economically develop our, our community. So would it look all that much more different from what we've got today? I would say Hawaii's model has been heavily focused on marketing Hawaii, getting people here. So in that sense, and I don't think we're trying to disrupt that either. It's about creating a destination that's managed and also provides economic opportunities for our local community. How do you interface with the counties? You know, because we're watching Maui County do something different with what commercial companies can do, let's say, at parks, you know, and parking issues. How do you plan to navigate that? I think a key to this contract really is to the ability to co collaborate, to bring parties together, state, county, industry, local residents, bring them all together. So the key component is how do you facilitate conversations and ensure that everybody has opportunity to weigh in and also help execute uh, destination management plans. So I plan to work, my team, I plan for us to work very intimately with parks, with county officials, with elected leaders, with tourism industry leaders to ensure that we have a clear path on how we could find the right balance. Again, it, for me, it's about reciprocation. It's about make, ensuring that there's a reciprocal relationship between the industry and community, and that being the focus of these types of conversations that I feel need to occur between the various stakeholders. We've been watching a situation develop there on the Big Island at YPO. Any ideas on how to resolve that? Well, I think YPO is a, is a beautiful example. This is, it, it really begs, you know, how can we be proactive so it doesn't necessarily get to that space? How do those stakeholders have a seat at the table or when do they have a seat at the table? That way, these types of situations can be addressed before it starts to impact way of life. And so that's something that I would like to do is make sure that those on the ground, those community voices, those 
those that really value it understand and have a certain perspective on that balance, the reciprocal relationship, have a seat at the table early on. And so that's what I would focus on is bringing them to the table before. Let's find the balance. Let's find the relationship before it starts to heat up. Does uh, CNHA have any new ideas about using geofencing and technology to manage our sites? Our goal is to ensure that we have the best for Hawaii and ensure that you know the, the message is critical. But hiring the right people that know the industry and how to market is going to be valuable. We're not claiming that we're going to be the experts, but we're going to find the experts that can market Hawaii in a meaningful way. And, and geofencing and using newer technology is critical. And so we've engaged a number of stakeholders. Our proposal had included uh, examples of that. And so absolutely, we plan to, and I think that's something that HVCB has had a long time to understand. And we, we value that contribution. And we want to see how we can work with them to ensure that these ways in which we market our islands are front and center and being utilized to push us forward. What do you say to taxpayers that in this new way forward, you know, that you're going to get beyond the Pilikia, right? Because there's been some bad blood with yep. the protests on, on, on these contracts. I mean, would you be satisfied with just the management part of the contract? I think it's a balance. It's, an, it's the ability to work together. And that's the spirit of what we propose. We didn't propose to just wipe everything out and start fresh. It's about taking what's been working and bringing some new, fresh ideas to the table. And of course, centering all conversations relating to the tourism industry based on that reciprocal relationship, again, between people, culture, and Aina. That's what makes us special. That's what's gonna keep us special. There have been questions raised about contracts that you had with the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. Uh, anything you wanna say about that, either to get the record straight, because it, you know there was some feeling sure. that maybe there was an accountability with some of those contracts. Well, I think, you know, we're. With the Office of Foreign Affairs, with respect to that contract, you know, we were in a pandemic. We were awarded right before the governor shut down the state. And so naturally, we were advocating to pivot the program in a direction in which the environment was was surrounded by this, this new pandemic. And so there was disagreement as to how that would be administered. Ultimately, OHA wanted the program run a certain way. We didn't agree with that direction. And so while we were working to resolve the, the disagreement between the two agencies, CNHA ultimately decided to uh, end the contract and return the funds to the Office of Foreign Affairs. It's an unfortunate situation, but I think it was exacerbated by the pandemic and people's need and CNHA being on the ground trying to service those beneficiaries. It just, you know, but I'll say this, that I think a lot of what was mentioned on the news wasn't necessarily true. There is a strong relationship between the Office of Foreign Affairs and CNHA. We serve the same purpose, the same goals, and in this case, it just was an unfortunate situation. And you currently have a number of OHA employees on your staff. <laughs> I do. I, th I think half of my executive team is from the Office of Foreign Affairs. Uh, so that's what I mean, is that the relationship's strong, the mission, the goals that we share are intact. You know, we recently had our, our big convention in which OHA was very prime and, uh, front and center there. Uh, but, you know, sometimes things that occur in the Hawaiian community, we're not going to always agree. You know, they're, they're, we agree to disagree, and in this case, that's what occurred. But what's more important is how we work together going forward. 
That was Kuhio Lewis, head of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, clearing the air over the multiple protests filed over the Hawaii Tourism Authority's marketing and management contract. The time clock is ticking, and it remains to be seen if a deal between CNHA and the Hawaii's Hawaii Visitors Bureau can be worked out. is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about a rustic mountain lodge that was built in part on the remnants of a Maui military installation. Those abandoned structures became the property of the Department of Interior after the end of the Second World War and were converted into cabins. The lodge was opened in August 1947 as an official part of Hawaii National Park after it was granted a business concession permit to create a visitor attraction to take advantage of the spectacular mountain views that the site offered. The original managers were a brother and sister team, Robert Von Temsky and Alexa Von Temsky Zabriskie. They opened their mountain lodge in style with a VIP reception and a horseback excursion for guests. The renovated dining room seated 60, and room rates ran as low as $7.50 a night. It's fondly remembered by Kama'aina, and we're wondering if you can tell us the name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. Who needs to go to the emergency room for COVID? Have things changed since the pandemic began? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the current state of emergency care for COVID and everything else. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu.
Tomorrow, the fate of many Hawaii political races gets decided by our registered voters. We talked to State Elections Chief Scott Nago earlier today about the snapshot going into General Election Day. Voters need to know that ballots must be received by 7 p.m. on Election Day, not postmark. So if they still have their ballot, if they're still holding on to their ballot, they can still vote. However, they shouldn't drop it off in the mail. They should go to a place to deposit or a voter service center and vote in person. For a list of those, you can go to our website, elections.hawaii.gov. I dropped mine off at Honolulu Hale this weekend, and it was a breeze, just in and out, no line. How come you waited so long? <laughs> well, you know, I did not realize that you could just drive through, and I had walked mine oh, in yeah. during the primary, but this was easy. Most of them are drive-through drop boxes. And so that should make things easier. What can you tell us about returns so far? So, so far, we've had about over 285,000 voters who already cast a ballot. That seems to be down from the 2020 general election, but like I said, you still have till 7 p.m. on election day to return your ballot. So if you haven't voted, please make sure you get in by 7 p.m. tomorrow. There was a huge number of people in the primary that were registered but didn't vote. Yeah, so like I said, I mean, I don't know why. Each election is different, so what causes people to vote? All elections are unique, so for us to determine, uh, predict turnout, it's, it's very difficult. What about as far as any other voter service centers? Have you added any since the primary? No, it's all it's the same amount of voter service centers as in the primary election. We've added since the 2020 election, but not since the primary of 2022. So we're asking voters if they're going to update their registration, because you can update your registration at a voter service center, to do it online prior to going there, because that's what the bulk of the voters causing the line did. Because when you update your registration, it takes a little longer. So if you can update your registration online at elections.hawaii.gov prior to going to the voter service center, that should cut down on the wait time. How are we doing with the machines and the tabulation and the staff that's been prepping all the ballots? So, so far, we've been processing start of our second week. We've been keeping up. On Oahu, we normally run two shifts, a morning shift and an afternoon shift. Fortunately, we didn't have to use the afternoon shift or the evening shift very much because of the morning shift was so efficient and got everything done. Okay, so what are you saying, that not as many so ballots caught, came in? We're all caught up. So you haven't had the need to run too many afternoon sessions? Yeah, I believe we ran on the first day. We ran a little into the afternoon, but not very late. So what's your sense, though, as to how this is all going to work tomorrow? Tomorrow is just a regular day for us. We'll come in, do the same thing, process ballots, then wait around till the vote, last voter has voted at the Voter Service Center and release results shortly after 7 p.m. or after the last person has voted. So not too much of a deviation from the primary? No. On the mainland, you know, we're watching legal wrangling in the courts you know, regarding suppression of vote, trying to invalidate the early voting. And, you know, there are just stories about armed people <laughs> near the, the sites, the voting sites. What's been our experience here? If the voters do experience intimidation at either a voter service center or a place of deposition, it is illegal and they should contact or they should report it to law enforcement because, like I said, it is illegal. Okay. Call 911 and let them know. Yes. Had you been seeing any type of interference at all, just as you have been doing your checks on the voting systems? leading up to, to no, tomorrow? Not yet. Not so far, so good. Are you hearing anything on the neighbor islands? Um, for out? any election information, you can go to our website, elections.hawaii.gov, or you can follow us on social media at elections808. Oh, and don't forget to download your I Voted sticker with our ballot tracking. Okay, and are you seeing more people take advantage of that system? It's definitely up from the primary election. I believe we have over 20,000 signed up to 
get notifications. You don't need to sign up for notifications. You can still go online to check to see the status of your ballot bill. Any other issues that have cropped up between the primary and the general? Nothing that we've seen so far. Okay. <laughs> You're keeping your fingers crossed that all goes well. And toes. And toes. All right. Okay. All, all right. right. Okay. Thanks so much, Scott. Thank all right. You. That was Scott Nago, Chief Elections Officer for the State of Hawaii, reminding voters it is too late to mail your ballots, but you can still drop them off at the Voter Service Centers, which is offering drive-through services. You can also still register to vote, but do it online and before 7 p.m. to avoid lines and to help avoid delays in the polls closing. Candidates will have 20 days after the election to file any challenges with the Hawaii Supreme Court. very curious thing is happening in school board races across the country. Political action committees are inserting themselves into school election campaigns. That's why today we are reflecting on the situation in Hawaii where a few years back we went from an elected school board to an appointed one. HBR's Casey Harlow joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Uh, so uh, this was kind of a learning curve for me uh, because I was away in college uh, when we uh, decided to go from an elected board of education to an appointed one. So uh, I had to do a lot of digging, talking to uh, several people about that switch from an elected to an appointed one. And you may recall within the last couple of years, there have been groups of parents who, you know, have been calling for an elected uh, board of education because they felt that they were being left out or they felt that they didn't have much of a say. Uh, but uh, what I stumbled upon was that back in 2010, uh, which was at kind of the height of the Great Recession, um, furlough Fridays was a thing, and I remember my parents telling me about this sort of thing, but it didn't really affect me at all, or I kind of was just out of touch of like, oh, well, furlough Fridays was a thing. Uh, and so that kind of led to a charter amendment question, or a uh, a constitutional amendment within uh, the state legislature of asking whether you want an elected board or an appointed one and roughly 57 percent 57.8 percent I believe uh, said yes we want an appointed board so I spoke with Jill Takuda who introduced uh, Senate Bill 8 she was the former uh, Senate education chair at the time uh, and now she is a Democratic candidate for uh, US Congress seat 2 district 2 uh, and we kind of just talked about, you know, how things have changed in the last 11 years and also kind of like what really drove uh, the uh, change from an elected board to an appointed one. This is what she had to say. We're in a very different time in terms of where we were 11 years ago and what we then put in place to make sure it never happened again. It was the appointed board, but it was also passing minimum school days, minimal school hours, you know, making sure that the black eye that we got in front of the entire country, as you might recall, literally, we had the Secretary of Education admonishing Hawaii for furlough Fridays, wanted to make sure that would never happen again. What the board members have had to do in the years since is really also then build on that foundation to make sure that it wasn't just about days and hours, it was the quality of instruction and ensuring uh, learning. And, you know, 
this kind of uh, led up to, you know, or was a result of the education department budget being slashed by 14% over two years. That was roughly $460 million out of the annual school budget. Teachers took an 8% pay cut and that still wasn't enough. So every other Friday, uh, there was no school. And obviously that had an impact not only on school hours, but also on the parents who had to, you know, shift uh, or find some sort of uh, way to um, find childcare in a way. Yeah, that was a problem. That yeah, was a real problem. Yeah, and you may have uh, been covering this, uh, and you know, I again been learning about this this whole time. And so I spoke with Kim Koko Iwamoto. She was a elected BOE member at the time, uh, served between 2006 and 2011. And she kind of brought an interesting perspective on things. She felt that, you know, the legislature was blaming the Board of Education for furlough Fridays. And this is what she had to say. What was happening at the time was the legislature was basically trying to point the finger at the Board of Ed saying, oh, well, furlough Fridays is their fault, <laughs> which is, you know, laughable because it's about how much money you can afford to to give the school system to pay teachers to come to work. And so many of us on the board, and especially the chair at the time, Garrett Taguchi and myself, we would go to the legislature and say, wait a minute, just, you know, want to do a reality check, raising funds to pay to operate public schools is your kuleana. That's your prime directive is to raise state revenue. That only lies with you. You're the only ones who can do that. So, um, and they were really um, miffed by that. They didn't appreciate because we were all independently elected individuals. So we're accountable only to voters. We're not accountable to an administration who's trying to keep us from testifying at the legislature and putting it all at the legislature's feet. So uh, interesting perspective. And, uh, you know, Tokuda, uh, again, testifies or says that this was the will of the people. There was a charter. uh, There was a constitutional amendment and the voters said, yes, we want an appointed board. And this whole story kind of came about because I was wondering if there were any pros and cons to an elected board as opposed to an appointed board. Uh, And I spoke with uh, a researcher at the National Educational Policy Center out of uh, University of Colorado at Boulder. And I also talked with uh, a couple people at UH College of Education, and they said that they don't see there's no research that says, you know, one's better than the other. Both are a little bit flawed in ways, you know, but whether or not uh, this actually um, becomes whether or not this actually uh, addresses the issues is you know, both have pros, both have cons. Yeah, I mean, I know one thing uh, for the uh, uh, school board races is that, uh, you know, there were so many candidates, it was really hard for people to know who they were voting for, kind of like with OHA. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's th- that's been an improvement, I think. And then the governor is ultimately accountable. So. Yeah. But thank you so much, Casey. No, thank you. We've been talking to HBR's Casey Harlow about the Hawaii's Board of Education being appointed rather than elected. You can read his story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. To learn to read Friday come and we gotta stay home More days not less is what we need Friday come and we gotta stay home Now us kids get an extra long vacation Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Island Community Health Center providing medical, dental, and behavioral health care services island-wide. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org.
Important ballot measures are at play in the midterms. In some states, voters are being asked to consider limiting their own right to put citizen-sponsored initiatives on future ballots. These are states where the Republicans are often in fairly dominant control. And the only way that progressive liberal voters could actually institute policies is through a ballot measure. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from UHM Kennedy Theater's dance production, Form Within a Form, Echoes and Reverberations, exploring themes of nurturing and transformation. Opens this Friday. Tickets by searching Kennedy Theater. Our Reality Check segment looks at the business of Christmas trees. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Cassie Ordonio got a whiff of a native tree that some would like to see replace the non-natives that are imported every year. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so the trees from the mainland, the Fraser and the Doug firs, those already started uh, coming in on the mass containers, huh? Yeah, they just got their early shipment and... Um, the Department of Agriculture said they got their early shipment, which is surprising for them, um, pointing to climate change. So about 10 containers came just last weekend. And with those 10 containers, there's about 5,000 trees total of uh, mostly Douglas fir. Right. And, and those will be on sale soon at the stores. Uh, but you came across a, a company that is offering, what, native trees, native Hawaiian trees as an alternative to these imported varieties? That's right. It's a native Hawaiian Christmas tree, Alahe'e. Um, Rick Barboza, uh, who co-founded Huiku Mauliola, um, is planning to sell these trees this year. He's actually been selling them earlier this year, but now this is his first time actually advertising these trees. And they're very different from your regular uh, Douglas fir or even the Norfolk pines that are locally grown here. Um, so the Alahe'e grows very similar to a Christmas tree like the Douglas fir. It has this triangular shape, but you don't all, you don't have to worry about those pine needles that end up on the ground towards the end of the season those um, leaves are mostly oval shape and they'll stay on and um, the one thing I want to point out is that these trees are sold alive and still in pots. Ah okay and now you know I, I know we've done stories about the uh, uh, Christmas tree farm over on the north shore here on Oahu. Uh, they plant uh, Norfolk pines which are not native uh, and some other varieties uh, but those are actually grown and then cut as opposed to being shipped in in containers. Yeah, and there's um, a push, not just the push, but also initiative to also just buy locally. Um, and this is just more of an option. It's not like the farmers are saying, hey, you have to buy these trees, but this is just an option if you want to preserve these trees for generations. Or um, let's say if you want your traditional uh, Douglas fir or maybe the Norfolk pine. But the Norfolk pines, uh, for example, are a popular Christmas tree. Sometimes they actually are still sold alive. Uh, but they can last um, if they're cut maybe like four to five months after, but then you toss them in the green bin where they're recycled. Yeah, I bought one uh, last year in Norfolk for the first time, and that was nice because, yeah, you didn't have any needles to clean up afterwards. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. <laughs> and, you know, they always say you can, you know, just get some uh, branches if you want the, the scent of the Doug fir. Uh, but, yeah, this move toward, you know, native plants is interesting. So I'll be curious to see what kind of... Um, you know, reception uh, of people 
or, or Rick gets, Rick Barboza gets, you know, with this idea of buying local. Yeah, and this is kind of uh, an idea that he had just because he didn't like the idea of buying a dead tree. There's nothing you can do to revive that tree. So just having this alternative to preserve for generations is what. And what's good about the alahe'e, for example, is that since they're in pots, they won't grow as big as let's say you get a six foot tree. It will stay six feet if it stays in the pot, or you can plant it in your backyard and then preserve that. It's interesting too because I know uh, some people are allergic to the. Uh, the pines and the the uh, uh, fir trees that are brought in, uh, you know, they're allergic to the sap, and so they don't want them anywhere in the house. So if that's, you know, uh, your situation, yeah, you might look toward a native. Yeah, most uh, most definitely. Unless you're allergic to the flowers, that might be a different. I'm not um, allergic to anything, so I kind of can't relate. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But mm-hmm. for the alahe'e, um, they actually they actually bloom um a cluster of white flowers so you kind of get that fragrance um so they bloom more normally in the springtime or in the fall um unfortunately they're not blooming right now but then it gives a chance for um buyers to hang their traditional ornaments and so has he planted a lot of these does he have a lot for sale there are actually more than 200 that is actually growing in his nursery. There are some that's already six feet tall. Um, that can be maybe between 175 to $200, but 175 for sure. Or, or if you can get the smaller version, um, probably like a foot to three feet, that's between $15 to about 35 bucks. Okay. But they are a little pricey, but they're native and, and they're alive. So you can keep them around for next year. No, most definitely. So we'll see like what happens, but at least you don't have to get the messy pine needles on the ground. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Cassie. All right. Thank you. That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's reality check. Uh, read her story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips shine a light on a nearby star and a giant black hole in a cosmic dance. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time. Our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in the sky. And we're so grateful to have astronomer Christopher Phillips back to guide us through that. We've got him on the line. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What is in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week's stargazers look out for Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in our evening skies. The planets will be spread out from east to the southwest after sunset. The moon this week will be passing through its full phase, and so spotting those faint objects in the heavens will be very challenging indeed. Now, I know something you're not going to be able to spot, but it sure is exciting. Chris has news on the black hole that is closest to planet Earth. Is that accurate? Indeed. Astronomers using the International Gemini Observatory atop Mauna Kea have discovered the closest known black hole to the Earth. This astrophysical beast weighs in at 10 times more massive than our own sun. 
Spotting this elusive interstellar predator posed a unique challenge since the black hole is currently dormant and not emitting any of the usual X-ray emissions that we normally see from a beast like this. Well, Chris, how close is this beast as you refer to? <laughs> well, fortunately for us, this black hole is roughly 1,600 light years away from the Earth, <laughs> okay. so it poses no danger to our star system. However, this is just one dormant black hole, and we believe that there are many, many more out there. And so explain the fast Fascinating process, no doubt, of how astronomers found it if it wasn't emitting the X-rays. Well, believe it or not, this black hole has a companion star, a star mm. like the Sun, that gave away the black hole's position as it orbited the black hole. This Sun-like star orbits the black hole at the same distance that the Sun orbits the Earth. And if you ask me, that's a little too close for comfort. Sure thing, and so they could see the shadow or the impact on the light as the thing went across it. That's right. By analyzing the light curve of this system, they were able to detect the black hole. And you were saying there's a a few of these things. How many do you think are out there, Chris, the dormant black holes? <laughs> well, we think there may be many millions of these stellar mass black holes out there roaming the dark between the stars. But fortunately for us, we know how to spot at least some of them. Well, hopefully there's none hiding right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's Christopher Phillips. Another fascinating report here, and thank you. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Maui's Wailuku Civic Complex, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we reminded you of a rustic mountain lodge that opened on Maui after the end of the Second World War. It was situated on Haleakala, on land run by the Department of the Interior's National Park Service, and it was dotted with cabins converted from a wartime military installation. Guests were brought to the lodge by bus from the airport to its mountainside location. It kept a stable of 40 horses and mules to take guests on excursions. Local families on the Valley Isle may remember sunset dinners with spectacular mountain views and leisurely horseback trips through the area. But the strong winds of winter weather at the lodge's high elevation proved to be the downfall of the Haleakala Mountain Lodge and its successor, the Silver Sword Inn, which are the answers to today's backyard quiz. The lodge owner said it became impossible to sustain the business and visitor attraction during those colder months and eventually the enterprise went under. We stumped you on this one. We have no winners. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. The short film, Imalama Pono Willy Boy, is screening tonight at the Hawaii International Film Festival as part of the Made in Hawaii Shorts 2 showcase. It's set in a fictional homeless encampment where protesters are gathered while law enforcement clears out residents who are mostly Hawaiian. The film's main character is a native Hawaiian policeman, uh, a police officer named William Kupihea Aka, a.k.a. Willy Boy. 
During the course of the story, he's put in a position to choose between what is legally Pono and culturally Pono, between official duty and protecting his community. It's the first short film for director uh, Kekama Amona, who wrote the script with his wife. Amona is a former charter school teacher who enrolled in the University of Hawaii's film school after turning 50 to pursue a degree in digital film production. The Conversations' Russell Subiano talked to him about his film and becoming a filmmaker later in life. What piqued my interest is that it's a story set during a protest, much like the one we've seen on Mauna Kea at Hunana Niho Mm -hmm. up in Kahuku. But the main character in the story is not one of the protesters. It's one of the officers assigned to the protest. Can you share just a little bit more about your film? A Malama Pono Willie Boy is about William Willie Boy Kupehea, who's called in on his day off to evict the Native Hawaiian people who are protesting about being evicted from the place where they live, but it's considered an illegal homeless encampment by the state of Hawaii. And so when he goes in, you know, his motivation is to get the overtime to pay for bills. Once he gets there, He's partnered up with Leonard Aquina, his partner. And as they go through, you know, it kind of shows the difference in approach for how they're working. Aquina just wants to get in, get out, get paid. And Kupahea, he's going through, he has to do his job, but he's trying to be respectful of the place too. And so when he discovers that he's related to one of the people, KK, and that his cousin Dennis is actually a resident that he didn't know, that forces him to, you know, it kind of pushes him to maybe evaluate his, where he's putting his priorities. So I'm not going to go into the ending, but as we were going through the process of making the film, trying to gather people to help make the film, we're telling the story and there's a lot of people who come up to us and say, man, you know, the story is really powerful because, you know, their father or their uncle or their cousin is a sheriff or a police officer or DLNR who's had to deal with this situation where you're sent in and you have to evict family members. And so that kind of, you know, that conflict between, you know, what's the right thing to do in that situation? Because you you have to pay bills. I think it really adds a level of authenticity to the story that people kind of, they can kind of feel already. And I think it connects across not just local culture, not just Hawaiians, but to anybody who's been in that situation. The juxtaposition that really made an impact on me when I was watching the Mauna Kea protests in 2019 is where we have a lot of our people wanting to protect Mauna Kea, but we also have a bunch of Hawaiians on the law enforcement side. Mm -hmm. That conflict interested me, that conflict within the conflict. And I think that's very interesting about your film as well, is this idea that here are two Hawaiians tasked with a job, the two officers, but they have different outlooks and different mindsets. As you're writing the script, you and your wife are writing the script and you're developing these characters. How do you balance what is the right motivation or what is the right outcome? It has evolved over time. At the start, we had Kupehea, Willie Boy. He's going to be the protagonist. You know, from that, I think we understood that if he's going to be challenged, he has to have like almost an antagonist. Mm -hmm. So Akina became the antagonist. And, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, yeah, you know, 
oh, he's so good. I hate that guy. And for Sean to take on that role was really impressive. But we also want it to be that Akina has to be the hero of his own story. That's what is really important or else he just becomes a villain. And to me, I really identify with Akina because he is put in that situation. He just wants to do the job and get out. But he feels this self-loathing because he's not connected to his culture and his language. You know, I felt that way because I was born and raised in a time when, you know, Hawaiian language and culture wasn't valued. It was just a tourism thing. And so when I went to school, I, you know, I learned Japanese because that was the option. Okay, get a job, go into the tourist industry. You got to learn Japanese. Later on, when I saw, you know, wow, I really wish I would have learned Hawaiian early on and started. So I've been taking classes and I still got to practice, but that's the goal. But for Akina, I think he feels that, you know, his backstory is maybe he's been looked down before by Hawaiians who look down on him as, oh, you Hawaiian, you cannot speak. You know, what's the matter with you? Even in the script, when Willie Boy and KK are talking in Hawaiian, he feels this kind of like he's left out. He's an outsider within his own culture. And I, I've felt that way many times, and it, it does hurt. But he takes it to the extreme where rather than trying to find out what's really going on, what they're talking about, he just assumes that they're talking crap about him. And yeah. so when they're actually talking, you know, and Willie Boy's trying to get through to kicking, he gets offended and that just raises the, the stakes and his reaction. I can see it where Willie Boy is maybe not a big fan of Akina because the way he does act. And I think, you know, for police officers, you have really great police officers. And I think with all the things that have happened, some people just assume that all police officers are bad. And that's just a, that's a really poor assumption. But you're going to have, like in any profession, in any culture, in any ethnicity, you're going to have people who are just not great people, not the people you really want to hang around. But that's why we wanted to kind of give it different levels and make it more real that, you know, everybody has their own agendas that are driven by their own values, which create their action. The film is basically showing, because all the characters are Native Hawaiian, and all of them are played by either Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, which is really important. And it's really showing uh, different facets of all these Native Hawaiians. Akina is Native Hawaiian, but he feels this way. His values are just not rooted, not connected to the culture. Willie Boy is more connected, but he's kind of conflicted with his job. KK is almost kind of like the unfiltered and kind of, you know, not so jaded yet by the situation and by life. And so she is another aspect. And then you have Kaniela Daniels, who is the spokesperson for the homeless encampment, the houseless encampment who's actually played by one of the residents of where we filmed at Puuhonua Owainai, Keala Pacheco. So she actually is a resident of that place because we wanted to be as authentic as possible. So she is a spokesperson, but in real life, that's actually where she does live. When I first learned about you and I first realized that you weren't a student in UH's film school or another film school, I was even more interested because you're somebody who's much older than a, than a typical college student. Is filmmaking something that you've always wanted to do? Or is this like a bug that kind of bit you a little bit later in life? 
Oh yeah, the bug bit me way later because I've done all kinds of jobs. I was actually a charter school teacher at Halau Kumana for 12 years. During that time, I was a language arts teacher and I was trying to help the kids connect to the content by using films to kind of show those different aspects, plot, character, theme, setting, all these things. But as I started going, you know, it's just being a teacher is hard. I give teachers a lot of credit. So once I was teaching, my wife encouraged me to go to film school at ACM. So I was probably the oldest student there by far. I mean, I was in my 50s. So that, you know, it's humbling to go back and you have all these little kids who are like 20 years old. And But it's a matter of, okay, you know, I, I want to tell stories that are important for this place. I don't want to be a Hollywood director or any of that kind of stuff. I want to tell stories that are important here. So both me and my wife went through, she actually went in earlier. Her track, her goal was to be a screenwriter. So once we got out, we were working on this project. We went through the Sundance Native Shorts Lab. That was really helpful to be exposed to that kind of workshop kind of attitude. But then, you know, that Sundance name is so impressive and it carries a lot of weight to help get people to look at the story. But it only takes you so far and you just got to, it's a lot of hard work to take the story and keep revising it and seeing other films being made at the same time. It's very humbling and kind of like, uh, when's our film going to get done? But um, I'm definitely not the traditional route. I'm much older. I might have the record when I actually get a feature done to be the oldest, you know, first time filmmaker or something like that. I'd be pretty (laughs) proud of that. But yeah, I think the business, this career path, this passion project path, it definitely favors the younger emerging artists. But the flip side of that is if you're older, you have way more stories to tell and you have lived life with experiences that, you know, somebody who's 18, 19, 20, just they haven't had. I know that your film is going to screen at the Hawaii International Film Festival today, but I do know that that screening is sold out. Where else can audiences be able to watch your film? So on Kauai, it's going to be playing at the Waimea Theater on Sunday, November 20th. And on the Big Island, it's going to be playing in Hilo at the Palace Theater on Sunday, November 20th. And then virtually online, it's going to be playing starting from November 14th till the 27th. If you get the virtual pass, look for the Made in Hawaii Shorts 2 program. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no problem. That was director Kekama Amono talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. We'll have links to where you can watch Amona's short film, Imalama Pono Willy Boy, on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. The term Hawaiian homes is a joke to me Cause every piece of land is Hawaiian homes to me But it ought to be a residential blood must be 50% Whoever thought of that law is an idiot to me So we're living on the beach and you call us squatters Because we're living off our own land Fishing from our own waters I promise our fight will never be over well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we head to the polls. Got something interesting you'd like to share? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? Well, all of our shows are archived. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.